So the message today is, what's the use of knowing? What's the use of not knowing and what's the use of knowing? The previous age, if we look at history, was known knowingly or unknowingly to you as the industrial age. And the industrial age has lasted until perhaps the last 10 years. And so where did the industrial age start? I didn't know where it really started. I learned it in history, but I forgot it until I was invited to preach in Scotland. And then the pastor invited me there to preach. said, this is where the industrial age literally started, in Glasgow, where we started mass production, where we started factories. And that was the beginning of the industrial, uh, industrial age and revolution. And it was an eye-opener for me. But I say, sadly, side by side with the industrial age of mass production through factories was child labour. And he said, Christians were at the forefront of setting children free, many of them who live in poverty, right? Many of them who live in poverty in Scotland, in England, and set them free from that. In the industrial age, the character of life was the speed of exchange of goods and services will determine either the poverty or the prosperity of individuals and nations. The speed of exchange of goods and services. And so you've got goods and services to sell, you will grow rich. If you are unable to do that, there's no speed in doing that, no ability in doing that, you grow poor. We are now in what we call the information age. In the information age, it's still the same, but with an added crust on the top or icing on the top, is the information age, is the speed and assimilation and application of knowledge that will determine either the poverty or the prosperity of individuals and nations. That's why the top 10 companies of the world are all the FANG companies, the companies that deal with technology, that's out there with your data, that's out there with information. And so very important for us to realize, we are the generation that lives with the greatest amount of information, but information does not necessarily lead to reformation of heart. That education is not equal to enlightenment. And we are producing generation after generation who are educated, but no enlightenment. And that is the challenge for us. And so you ask yourself, what's the use of knowing? On any day as you flip up your phone, at any moment in the day, Ask yourself, of the three or four or five hours you are on the phone, and your phone will tell you how many hours, what information are you downloading? And ask, what's the use of knowing this? Why have you chosen to read this about Lady Gaga? Is she of any importance to your life? Why have you chosen to spend so much time surfing this particular website? Why have you chosen? What's the use of this? And what's the use of not knowing the things that are important? So it's, it's important for you, if you call yourself a Christian, to see that how much time you spend reading the things that really lead you to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Or are you reading things that continue to corrupt your heart and your mind? There's a very important decision for you to make. And so our family has just gone for our first holiday just to Thailand. And we got on a plane. And um, for the very first time, we, it was an older plane, um, and as they were, as they were this, that we have not seen for a while, right? Uh, not experienced that. It wasn't a new plane that could give you the safety instructions through a screen, but the as they were, as they were this, was there giving instructions. 
And I sat there thinking, how many people are actually listening? I want to ask you, when you get on a plane, and it's an older plane, and the air steward, air stewardess is standing out there, right? do you ever listen to them and ask your children to watch them and listen to them? It's vital information. It's not vital to you until your plane may hit problems and crash. And so we are very bad in choosing what is important to listen to. So how many of you know how to do CPR? Firstly, do you know what it is? And so when former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe was shot, they crowded around him and one person knew how to give him CPR. But unfortunately, the wounds were fatal to his neck and almost the second one hit his heart. So it reminds me of my friend. I've given the illustration of my friend many, many years now, many times now. Uh, we grew up together in primary school, etc. His father was always a joker. Seldom do you go to some, your friend's house right, and find that his parents are jokers. He, her father always played tricks with us, pranks with us, etc. And then I've not seen my friend for many years, and he came to Singapore, he knew he was here, and then he celebrated his father's birthday at a restaurant here in Singapore. His family is 12, 10 children, my family, 12 children, and as they were celebrating the father's birthday, all of a sudden the father slumped onto the table. And they all said to him, Dad, stop it, lah. we're in a public place, no, it's so embarrassing. His dad was having a heart attack. But none of the 10 children or grandchildren knew how to do CPR. He died. Which leads us to ask what we started with. What's the use of knowing this? And what's the use of not knowing that? When we read the epistle of 1 John, he's pounding home the truth. There is great use, both in earthly life and for eternity, to have fellowship with true apostles, with the true church. There is goodness in that. And then because you've come to know the true church, you've come, you will come to know Christ and the Father. If you read the testimonies that are here, and yesterday we had some testimonies given and they were highly encouraging. And so our DG group met last week. First time I ran the Just for Newcomers group, never met them through a whole one and two years because it was all Zoom. And the first time we met as a, as a DG group on site, we met each other the first time. You know what was the direction? I didn't know you were so short. I didn't know you were so tall. I didn't know you were so fat. <laughs> we didn't say those things. Just so short, so tall. And just wonderful. Then we studied the lesson together and then came around and shared prayer points for the first time live on site and sharing prayer points. And all of a sudden, one of them shared, please pray for me. My father has dementia. He's very hard to live with, very hard to cope with. We do not know what to do. We are run short of, uh, of, run short of ideas of how to help him. We are looking for a home to put him in. We do not know where to put him in. And as he shared that, the next person after him shared that, I'm working at this place called St. Luke's. I can put your father in some place. What's the use of not knowing God's people? When you sit in fellowship, all of a sudden you say, what we've been struggling for months or years, the person with the solution to this, to find a place for my father, is just sitting here. There is goodness in Christian fellowship when we put the truth into action, into loving action. You read the testimony of one of them, Wai Fang. 
And Wai Feng, as she came to believe in Christ, the father was mad enough at sometimes to throw away their Bibles, etc. He was always resistant, but then he came to this conclusion. They kept praying for the father's salvation, and finally, when he was 80 years old, he was baptized. And who was he baptized with, baptized by? He was baptized by his youngest son, who had then become a pastor at the church in Singapore. So for all those years, for 80 years, he said, what's the news of knowing Jesus? But at 80 years old, God had worked through all the circumstances of his life, worked to his children to collapse his opposition to God and Jesus and to finally give in. There is goodness in believing in Jesus. Amen? Once you capture that, this letter springs to life. That's what it means. The goodness of knowing God's people, the new goodness of knowing God himself. And so, in quick summary of last week, right, and so the outline for today, knowing the word of life, knowing the light, and knowing sin. And last week we were introduced to John. And what do we know about John? He was called by Jesus. He didn't call Jesus. It was Jesus who called him. Always get that right. It is God who chooses us. We don't choose God. And in Jesus' life, that was on full display. He calls us to be his disciples. We do not put up our hands to follow him. Then he followed Jesus to Jesus' death. And on the third day, Jesus rose again. And a penny dropped for all of them. This man is truly who he is. He is the Christ. But more importantly, he is the suffering Christ. The suffering Christ I shouldn't reject. The suffering Christ I should worship and believe with all my life. And so persecution broke out in Jerusalem against the Jewish Christians. They fled. That is recorded for us in Acts 8. They spread out all over. And, a, and the gospel then reached Rome. As it reached Rome at the time, Rome was going downhill and Emperor Nero started to persecute and blame Christians for that. And then Christians ran away from Rome. A good number of, of Christians died. Right? Peter and Paul, in all likelihood, was crucified. Then what Jesus promised in killing me, in crucifying me, who has come as the true temple, the new meeting place between God and man. Why? Because the old temple in Jerusalem is totally corrupt from top to bottom, from chief priests down to the people, right? That will be destroyed. Of course, they laughed at him. But by AD 70, about 30 years after Jesus died and rose and ascended to God's right hand, what Jesus prophesied came true. Everything that Jesus says will come true. Amen? From judgment to salvation. AD 85 to 95 is when they think that most likely the gospel was written and maybe this first John was written and in all likelihood, revelation. And God gave this revelation to John on the island of Patmos and spoke to him. Now was a second wave of persecution worse than Nero under Emperor Domitian. And God spoke to him Babylon, which is Rome, is about to collapse. But you don't worry about what Babylon will do to you. Though Babylon may take your life, you look forward to the new Jerusalem. That is the vision. And so this letter was most likely written from Ephesus. And so they ran the waves of persecution. They went from Jerusalem to Rome and now in Ephesus. And he is writing this. And vitally important, the main things in this letter, he's dealing with a group of false teachers who had come to his own church. This is John's church. And this group of teachers say they are the true ones. 
because they have direct spiritual elite knowledge. So if you know them, you come to know the true and the living God. So there are two groups. There is John who came and preached the gospel to them. There is this new group that says they have direct knowledge from God. And it's this direct knowledge that stands that apart and makes them true. And that's why they could do what they did. Because they're the true church, they left John's church. And so the word sin is used 27 times. The devil is alluded to as strategic points. Not frequently, but every time he sees this, don't forget it's the devil's work, even in church. And love appears 43 times. Which tells you that Jesus is God's love letter to save us from Satan's work of unlove. Whatever you do not know about the gospel, it is this. And so what we read earlier, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. So a few things need to be unpacked for us. You need to ask, what perhaps, what did John mean by from the beginning? Here are a few possibilities. Because when he wrote the gospel, he said this, in the beginning was the Word. That was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And then he's going to move down to John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh. So could he have the same meaning that the beginning could mean the creation of time? And so we go backwards, we go backwards, we go backwards. If you go back all the way to Genesis 1, in the beginning, three words. What's the next word? God. When you go all the way back, it is God, the pre-existent God. The God has always been there, the true, the living and the loving God, who then made the universe and made men and women in His image. So when we go all the way back, you would find this thing. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God, and then the Word became flesh. Is he referring to this? Or some scholars think of to say, no, he's referring more to the incarnation of Jesus, that the, when Jesus came, it was not a human will, it's not a human conception, human birth. He was birthed by the will of God through the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit working in him. And so the message carries that it's the pre-existing God that has come and taken on human form. Or some scholars tilt it a bit more. This is not about the person of Jesus. It's the revelation of Jesus. You know why? Because four times in four verses, he says this. He says what? Which we have heard, which we have seen, which we have looked upon. If he was referring to the person of Jesus, he should have used who we have seen, who we have heard, who we have touched, but there is, you listen to the language and trying to reach the right conclusion. Is he referring to that? But then some would say this refers actually to the hearing, the touching, and the hearing touching. And it was the disciples who couldn't believe. It was Thomas who said, unless I see and touch, I won't believe. And Jesus said, touch. And put it all together. What is this that we need to understand that is the word of life from the beginning. is God's eternal word has become man. The word has 
become flesh. And as we say this in Christian circles, it seems like, yeah, every Christmas we sing these songs, we know that, etc. But in the first century, under Greek culture and Greek philosophy, right, the whole philosophy of the Greeks was man aspires to be like the divine. Humanity aspires to be like the divine, but they were abhorrent and opposed to what? That the divine, the immortal, should ever become human. And so in the first three centuries, it was heresies about the identity of Jesus. And what John is saying here is, what do you have? With the heard, the seen, looked upon and touched is the historicity and the reality of the gospel. We are witnesses of this. John is saying, the apostles. And we not just witness this, as you heard the testimony, we not just experience Jesus in our life, but we proclaim him. And you who fellowship with us, you can believe and bet your life on him. So, want you notice how staggering this is? There are two groups in church. Take yourself back to 2,000 years, to John's church. The original people who said this, John, right? So let's say it's Pastor Sun Kun and his wife, June, who started a Bible study in their home. So you start a Bible study in your home, you're starting a church. It's Chris and Mona in my home, right? We're starting a church in our home. That's how it all starts. And then we say this staggering statement if you come as a newcomer. Uh, if you come to know us, you come to know God. Don't you think that's a very bold statement? That's what John is saying. If you come into fellowship with us, you come into fellowship with Christ. You come into fellowship with Jesus Christ. You come into fellowship with the true and the living God. It's either totally bold and false or totally bold and true. Then comes a new group. The thing that John told you, the thing that Senkun and his wife told you, the thing that Pastor Chris and Mona told you is not true. We're the true ones because now God has downloaded special knowledge to us. You come to know us. You don't need, you don't need something for your sin. There's no such thing called sin. All you need is knowledge. All you need is knowledge in life. And some people are beginning to follow that. If all you need in knowledge is life, you know what's the problem? It's a very huge problem. If all you need in life is enlightenment, not salvation, then Jesus died on the cross for nothing. That is the decision you have to make. So he's pounding home the centrality and necessity of the gospel, and the gospel is the only channel, the only radio channel, TV channel, whatever social media channel, in which you're going to hear about the person and the work of Jesus. Of Jesus' humanity, he's the Christ. Of Jesus' divinity, he's the Son of God. And to ask yourself, how certain are you of this? From Monday to Sunday, from Monday, the time you wake to the time you sleep, how certain are you? And so John essentially offers them a fellowship stairway. Take it from the bottom. You believe our proclamation. He uses that word twice. Because we are witnesses, then you fellowship with us. But I want to assure you, you're not just fellowshipping with human beings. If you come into our fellowship, you fellowship with Jesus and ultimately fellowship with the true and the living God. 
And the whole purpose of proclaiming this is not simply for fellowship with us, but fellowship with God. And that will make our joy or your joy complete. And the scholars debate, is it our joy or your joy? And it must be both. Our joy is to proclaim this to you so that you might believe and have eternal life. Your joy is that you receive this. You stick your life in hearing the gospel and believe in Jesus no matter what. As much as Wai Feng and her family said, no matter how antagonistic that is towards us, no matter how much she throws out our Bibles or throws us out, we still got to carry on believing. And one day, he himself will believe. And at the baptism, there must have been joy all around. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness. If we say we have fellowshiped him while we walk in darkness, we lie. We do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in light, we have fellowship with one another. In the blood of Jesus, from this point onwards, he moves from what they are proclaiming, what they should be believing, right, to God is God is light and truth and fellowship. There is a relationship between truth and light, light and truth and fellowship. And true relationships is based on true knowledge. And you want to ask yourself, how true is your relationship? And so I was in a church in Cambridge and I went there to share at a missions conference. And I experienced something we never experienced in churches around the world, here in Singapore and Malaysia, etc. We still practice out their Christian tradition and British tradition, which is every time a couple wants to get married in church, they will announce it in church three weeks and ask for... So, Chris and Mona have been dating for a few years. They now decided to get married. Are there any objections to this? Week number one, no objections. Week number two, no objections. Week number three, then they can marry in week number four. You know what? At the ROM, is the same thing. The registrar of marriages that you didn't know. Pre-COVID and pre-virtual world, anyone who's got registered to be married, they'll put the notice out. These are all the people who are going to get married, right? And why do you put it out there? To make sure that you were not married before. And someone comes and says, hey, that, that, that was my husband. <laughs> my goodness. And just in case you laugh, it's nervous laughter, it has happened over human history, right? It surely has. And so they make sure. And, if you, and in pastoral ministry and counselling, sometimes we, we reach this, I never knew that about him. I never knew that about him. Which means you married this person without true knowledge of him. You will never have complete knowledge that belongs to God. But you must have true knowledge of each other. And all true relationships is built on true knowledge. All the more important with God. Is your relationship with God built on true knowledge? And that's very important. And so, very quickly, on the left-hand side, if God is light, you walk in light. And if you walk in light, you will walk in fellowship with one another. But if you go to the opposite side, you are in darkness. You walk in darkness, but you deny you walk in darkness. And so, for that group, the false teachers, they had no reason to leave John's fellowship, but they left. And they didn't think it was anything wrong. And, God, and John was saying, when they leave, they actually show that they live in darkness. They do not know the light. Because if they knew God as light and they live in, in the light, they would never have broken fellowship with us. So are you walking in truth or in lies? 
which leads us to, importantly, next one. So John's opponents were dismissing him and his message about Jesus. So never get used to dismissing and leaving a church for no rhyme or reason. If the church preaches, has the gospel, preaches the gospel and lives the gospel, you've got to pray and make every effort to continue there. And John's answer is, we are eyewitnesses of Jesus. If you dismiss us and our message, you will dismiss God and Jesus. You have no fellowship with God. That's the resounding message again and again. So I say again, there's no valid reason. So people come and go in our midst. They are transfers. And I pray for those who transfer, this will be your final destination. We do not know why you have left your churches, but we pray that this will be your final spiritual home. Amen? Let me just check. You may leave this for valid reasons. You're going overseas. You may leave this for valid reasons that ARPC is no longer central to you. Um, I don't know how, because we will always be here at Adam Road by God's grace. Right? We will leave here. Once I remember this person telling me, hey, Pastor Chris, I'm going to leave, you know why? Because uh, you are a whole pastoral team, right? Actually, after a while, every week I come, I close my eyes, uh, I hear the same thing. The same old message about Jesus. How do you think I responded? I'm, I'm sorry. But yeah, I line up all your 10 pastors. Uh, within five minutes, they're saying the same thing. It's all about Jesus. And I say, I'm sorry, but on the other hand, I can't be sorry because we should always be about Jesus. <laughs> he left. Right? The retention rate between the 80 to 100 children who go from P6 to basic our youth fellowship, it's running at about 90% by the grace of God. 90-95%. In some churches, the transition from primary school to youth fellowship, is, the attrition rate is about 50% or even lower. But some have started to come and say, you know, Pastor Roger and Pastor Jason, the curriculum they run there is so boring. I want to warn ourselves that boredom is not a reason for you to leave the fellowship. My DG leader is so boring. Pray for him. Love him. Be long-suffering towards him. Boredom, same message every week, is not a reason for you to leave the fellowship. It's a good fellowship. We can't produce... You want charismatic leaders among our 150 teachers, among our 60 basic leaders, among our 80 DG leaders, I have to send them to acting class. They are not there to entertain you. They are there to teach you to disciple you through their God-given character and personalities. So bear with them. They have some gifts. They have some flaws. But the gifts and the flaws is not your reason to leave that fellowship. It's vitally important, right? And so please do not look for the, the easiest reason I want to leave, right? I've got some tensions here. That burn. Could you be dismissing God's objective witnesses of for subjective visions and voices and experiences. Of course, if you go to another fellowship and the preacher gets up or the Bible study leader gets up, I have a word from you. It's a word from the Lord. Which one will you, will you listen to? Right? The, the preacher gets up and says, I had a dream, I had a vision. We get up and say, I have the word of God. You will listen to the vision. But you have to check out that vision of the authenticity of that vision based on the integrity of his life.
This is no, no frills gospel. It is this you must hang on to. And so the test of authenticity. Is yours a Jesus of God's revelation or a Jesus of your own imagination or own speculation? We say that again and again. If Jesus stopped meeting your needs, will you drop him? If Jesus no longer meets your needs in ARPC, you will drop him. Then Jesus has become your domestic helper. Jesus didn't come into the world to meet your needs. He came into the world to save you so that you will meet him and worship him. Not that he revolves around you, you revolve around him. Very important. So don't move from church to church looking for your needs to be met because your needs are fickle. At one time, this woman was everything. The next time, this woman is nothing. What are we going to do about this? We can't. We can give you the person who will meet every need of your life, the person who will walk through every sorrow of your life, the person who will be there with every jubilation of your life. His name is Jesus Christ. And I can say on behalf of the pastoral team and all my DG leaders, we are offering you Jesus. For this one and a half hours, our kids are down there listening to 150 teachers tell them the same thing about Jesus. Are you thankful? One more time. Are you thankful? Yes. Some people join us and you hear the word, you read the word, because they like our ecosystem. And what's our ecosystem? That we have triple learning. What we preach here is the basic youth, 80-90% follow the same curriculum, follow the same curriculum in insurance, so that we gather for our family devotion. We do not have to be ignorant of each other's books. We can share, what did you learn from First John in Truman's Church? What did you learn from First John as basic? These are things you may have taken for granted here in our midst, but you shouldn't, and you must pray for us to remain faithful. And finally, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. What does He mean by this? As you read First John, there are going to be a few tests. Number one is the Christ test, the Christological test, or simply the Jesus test. How important is Jesus to you? His whole humanity, his whole divinity. Secondly, is the sin test, the obedience test. If we believe in Jesus, you will not sin. Walking out of a Christian fellowship is sin. It is unloving, which is the third test. Are you loving or unloving? So, if you deny sin, you deceive yourself, you deny the truth, you deny God. If you confess sin, you confirm God is faithful and just and confident in His forgiveness and His cleansing. So we ask, are you walking in sin or in Christ? A whole new different ballgame. And so, very important, John is saying, as much as this happened, you believe in Christ, your sins are forgiven, past, present and future. But you and me have to work out in the actions of sin, because we still carry the DNA of Adam. We live the, in, in the in-between. I have my old nature, Adam. I have my new nature in Christ. That's very important that we understand this. And so, two extremes in regards to sin in the church. Our versus God's solution. God's nature, He's faithful and just whenever you confess sins. And God's flowing from His nature will come His action. He will always forgive and he will, he will always be just and He will cleanse you. Our nature is to deny that we are sinners and we have no acts of sin in thought and word and deed. And so we swing into two extremes. If we acknowledge, so the mark of a Christian is this. The mark of a true Christian 
is not the absence of sin in us, but the presence of confession of sin. A very huge difference. And over 2,000 years of church history, we have swung and made mistakes at both spectrum. There's one spectrum that preach um, perfect holiness. That as you believe in Jesus, it's possible to have perfect holiness. That's proven to be wrong. That the, the other extreme practice by the Roman Catholic Church before the Reformation movement, and so if you live in the 1400s, 1300s, in Western Europe, living under the corrupt Roman Catholic Church at that time, you will go into your village parish, you will sit in a box with the Catholic priest, you confess your sins to him. As you confess your sins to him, and most of them were farmers, uh, tradesmen, skillsmen, etc. So let's say it's Christian then. My confession as I go into the box is, this week I, I envied my neighbor's cows. His cows are more than mine and healthier than mine. Next week I come in and I confess, now I degenerated and now coveted my neighbor's wife. The Catholic priest sits there, and you may not believe it, you go and read a book like Steve Osman, which blew my mind away when I did church history. The Catholic priest has a catalogue, and whatever sin you confess, he will find the catalogue, and then the sins you confess, you will add up how many years in this place called purgatory. And purgatory in Catholic doctrine then is the in-between place between earth and heaven. And so, for my sin of envying, coveting my neighbour's cattle, 100 years in purgatory, example. Next week I come, I coveted my neighbour's wife. It's 1,000 years in purgatory. And the only way you can cancel your sin is to buy this thing called indulgences that the Catholic Church sells to you. And so, why confess to a man when he can do nothing about your sin except to add it up and make you pay for it? And so there are two extremes in Christian circles to 2,000 years of church history. We either go for perfect holiness, which is not possible because we live between the now and the not yet. I still carry in my body the DNA of Adam and the DNA of our new person in Christ. Or we confess. But we confess wrongly to a man, to a church system, that instead of leading us to salvation by grace, leads us to salvation by works. Why confess? You have no saviour from sin. And John is saying, you must confess. Because when you go to God, right, through Christ our Lord, He's always faithful to forgive you and just never to punish you again. You know why God will not punish you? For the way you failed your wife last week, for what you did to your father this week, because He's poured out His wrath completely. He's emptied out His wrath, His judgment upon Jesus on the cross. And a God who can be vindictive after He's poured out all His wrath and satisfied His holiness is a God you cannot trust. So He will not punish you again. And you mustn't ever think in your life, right? If this is true, if something bad happens in your life, personally, singularly, married, children, God is punishing me for something I did in the past. God is punishing me for something I did in the past. This is the, not the God of the Bible. When we go to Him, He's faithful and He's just. And so we have this. Our coping mechanism is what I've been preaching for years. We hide, we deny, we blame. But God has this. If we belittle sin, we belittle our Saviour. If you're serious about sin, 
Jesus will become beautiful to you, necessary for you, forgiving to you in every moment of your sin. Right? And so, we no longer call sin, sin. Adultery is now called, uh, he have, had an affair. Lah. Selfishness is, I'm standing up for my own rights. Superiority, you know, lah, I always speak my own mind. Right? Righteousness is pointing out the faults of others instead of pointing them to Jesus to find mutual forgiveness. So it's David Jackman in the commentary that said this. I read this. If we deny these things, what things? What Jesus highlighted as sin. Look at that. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, coveting, wickedness, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. If we deny these things, we are actually calling God to be a liar. There's a lot of focus on sexuality sins and necessary so. But sexual sins and LGBTQI are not the only sins Every time we envy, every time we slander, every time we gossip, every time we bear false testimony to each other, every time we discourage each other instead of affirm and encourage each other, that is a sin. Never get used to not calling that a sin. If you get used to that, Jesus will not be there in the moment of sin. He will not be there in the moment of salvation, sanctification for you. Jesus must become bigger and better. And so, how much we love God, is measured by how much we hate sin. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the word of God for us. And may we hold on to this and treasure this. We're going to stand and pray together and sing this song. This is how we know. This is how we know. It's about to rain, so no hurry. Stand for, stand for a moment of personal reflection. You deserve all glory and honour and power. We pray that you will speak to us and you have spoken to us. Not simply today, but you have spoken to us from the very beginning. But we have rejected your word, your voice and your will and listened to the word and the voices of the evil one and in the world. We live in the information age, but we are less and less reformed. We are more and more educated, but we are less and less enlightened. We become fools in your eyes. We thank you for your word to us. We thank you that we are listening not simply to mere man's words. We are listening to those who heard, who saw, who touched. And we have fellowship with apostles and fellowship with Jesus and the true and living God. Help us to treasure the fellowship that we have. Help us to listen and help us to live a life that is pleasing to you. Help us to call sin a sin in our lives, and in doing so, help us to call upon Jesus our Saviour, to experience His faithfulness, to experience His justice through God of, in God our Father giving Him to us. And we pray that through this, we will always be thankful and live a life of love. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. This is how we know. Amen.